Hello and welcome to Notes from the Conservatory, a podcast from the Bob Cole Conservatory of Music at California State University, Long Beach. This podcast is a chronicle of conversations and interviews with our faculty, students, and guest artists. I'm your host, Richard Cooper. Today, my guests are Neil Verone, who is a professor of conducting at the Eastman School of Music, and David Scott, who is a graduate conducting student here at the Cole Conservatory. Mr. Verone studied piano, composition, and conducting at Juilliard, and then went on to a career conducting symphony orchestras around the world. He is presently a professor of conducting and music director of the Eastman Philharmonia, Eastman School Symphony, and Chamber Orchestra. Now here is David Scott and Neil Verone. Uh, my name is David Scott. I am currently a master's student here at Cal State Long Beach, getting my graduate degree in instrumental conducting, mainly orchestral. My name is Neil Verone. I'm currently conducting uh, the orchestra here at the conservatory uh, in a concert next Wednesday. Brahms for a double concerto of Seyfried, and my colleague here is conducting the abduction from the Seraglio Overture of Mozart. Before coming to the Eastman School of Music as director of orchestras and professor of conducting, this is a position that I've held since 2002. I conducted for 30 years in the German opera house system, conducting in places like the Hamburg State Opera, Stuttgart, Dusseldorf, Berlin, and having made small guest appearances actually in Tokyo and in New York City at the City Opera. I'm really looking forward to the concert next week. Well, I'll start off with kind of an easy question from one of my friends. He wants to know what is your like Mount Rushmore of composers? Who's your top four or five? It's amazing how little things change, actually, <laughs> during one's life. I still probably would have to say Beethoven, Brahms, Mozart, and Wagner. So a little romanticism, a little classicism. I think one sees the classicism today, especially in Beethoven, especially the way historically informed performance practice today. But I don't quite see it that way. I kind of lean Beethoven towards the romantic side because he does have one foot in each era. I'm always interested to hear the great romantic conductors conduct Beethoven, so the, the Ford Wenglers and the Bruno Walters, the same conductors that actually also conducted great Wagner. And so I kind of really kind of see it backwards. I stand with both feet in the Romantic era and almost incorporate Beethoven and see where he's coming with that. I see the Ninth Symphony, and that's also the reason why at Bayreuth they always used to play the Ninth Symphony. I don't know whether they still do every year at the Wagner Festspiele, because they also see it as the beginnings of that whole genre. It's not a very, very contemporary view of Beethoven performance today. You get a very, very, very dry sound that Sforzati today are very, very clipped and everything has a lot of punch. But I miss the, I miss the German sound in it. I miss the Wagner sound in it. So I don't know, I make a compromise, but whatever. <laughs> well, talking about all this history and knowing all these performance practice things, how would you go about getting someone started in conducting and getting them to the level they would need to be to either go into a master's program or go into uh, uh, an assistantship without having um, you know the luxury of an undergraduate program. Getting into the conducting business is difficult 
no matter which way you look at it. I think the, the first thing that you have to decide is why said person wants to do it in the first place. Okay. So assuming that you have this drive actually to conduct, which many, many people have, but it might be for the wrong reason. Okay. So you have to know exactly what you're getting yourself into. Okay. <laughs> there were many, many times in my life, especially starting out where I said, gee, I didn't know it was going to be like this. I remember, for example, standing in a room with a whole slew of orchestra parts on the piano and we were making cuts and erasing cuts and doing this and and my colleague who is a Polish Kapellmeister said to me you see we studied conducting and this is what it turns out to be (laughs) but you know to answer your question I guess one first has to have actually a manual dexterity to allow them to be trained you just take a musician that wants to be a conductor but really has coordination problems and the older that person gets actually the harder it is to teach that the other thing is is whether they actually have the other side of the coin whether they have the musical historical background to be able to understand how to connect the dots in terms of go to bar to bar, where the transitions are, what has to be done, where the difficulties lie in scanning the score, what might they have to do during a rehearsal. So there's a lot of things actually that, you know, even before you get up anywhere near in the area of an orchestra that have to actually have to be taken care of. Let's say that the person that we're talking about actually has a driven talent to do this. Then I guess the next thing is, is to find a program where they can actually get some hands-on experience because as with almost everything in life, the things that would seem apparent shouldn't be done that way. You need a teacher to explain why, why something works or why something doesn't work because what you think feels good to do it this way, it might not be for somebody looking at you or playing with you the most easy way for them to play that particular passage that way. And you don't understand that because you're standing on the other side of the tennis net, you know, so. I would still say that to get somebody really going in their profession, they should really at least have a mentor that is very, very experienced, that is used to actually getting the job done within the smallest amount of time. There used to be a show, it was called Beat the Clock. And it was like an impossible feat that these people had to do. You know, you had to get like five ping pong balls in the cup. I mean, you'd be standing, you know, like 20 feet away and you'd have to toss them in. They'd be bouncing all over the place. As if that's not hard enough to do. Oh, and by the way, you have to do this within a minute and a half. That is exactly what conducting is. (laughs) So you have to make the best music possible. And when it's the end of the rehearsal, that's it. So you have to know exactly which areas of the beast that you're conducting to attack first. And you might not know that. As a young conductor, I never knew. Uh, I didn't know what's going to fall into place if I did one thing. It's like a puzzle. If you do one thing first, this will fall into place. If you do the wrong thing first, you might get stuck there and then you'll be cut short on rehearsal time at the end. For all of these reasons, the best advice I can give any young conductor is to find a good teacher. I like that advice. What's the best advice you could give to a conductor who's gotten to that point and now needs the experience of 
you know, getting in front of an ensemble? Well, I've been confronted with that question many times before. I think once you get into a program, things kind of take care of themselves to a certain extent. I don't have a single student that hasn't been in the position of throwing together their own group for one thing or the other. Uh, sometimes, actually, at Eastman, the composers sometimes form their own groups and you know pull one of my conductors. And so, at least in that particular case, they're alleviated of the problems of getting the group together themselves. But at Juilliard, for me, I remember I had to get together a group, you know, to do L'Histoire du Soldat, of course. I think every young conductor goes through that. And Siegfried Idol stuff that you know is manageable you know that you, you don't need so many players for i think one of the biggest pieces that people do today the appalachian spring for 13 instruments it, it gives the conductor a good sense of of what it's like actually to beat uneven bars all of these things that we're at that very very tender age of somewhere between 18 22 25 afraid of and then gradually you move on to larger groups which have naturally other problems because they are larger. The whole aspect of conducting, which I was brought up on recordings, recordings are finished products in a sense. The back is generally with the front unless you really get a live pirated recording or something like that. And you're saying, my God, the back of the orchestra is so far behind the front. That gives you more of a realistic aspect of what your goal has to be to fix and if you're always presented with this perfection, a George Zell Cleveland Orchestra program, for example, yeah. So, see, what is there actually to do, you know? <laughs> you know? I mean, I don't understand why, why the conductor is even necessary. Everything runs like clockwork. So, but that's not the way it sounds up on the podium at a first rehearsal. And when you don't know that, you have to be allowed to experience that. And I remember, you know, being thrown the first couple of times because things were so not together and I didn't know how to make them together. A lot of young conductors will tend to blame the orchestra for not being together. I heard Lauren Mazel actually was the main juror of the Malko competition way back in, in, in Denmark. This is about six to eight years ago before he passed. And some conductor had said, yeah, but this is not together. Can you please listen to each other? And he interrupted and said, no, the conductor is the one that makes it together. Find the gesture to make it together. And it was a pleasure to actually hear him say that. See, this is where real conducting technique comes in. You should try basically to have the experience of having something really not together and forcing yourself, okay, so do I give this earlier? How do I make it actually sound in sync when my gestures actually aren't in sync? To get a chorus to sing with an opera pit orchestra, I almost have to give the chorus entrance maybe a quarter of a second early. Otherwise, it will be late, depending on where they're standing. So all of these real, very, very real issues take place. And my colleague, actually, Mark Gibson in Cincinnati, has a saying behind his desk. He says, you have to do something poorly before you can do it well. You know, you have to have the experience of making your own mistakes. So it all depends on whether you can get into a program and actually have the opportunity to do that. If you don't have that opportunity, it is much more difficult. I knew a gentleman, an Italian student, who fortunately for him, his family was wealthy. They just rented him an orchestra to make an audition tape with. I think there's no way around every teacher that 
is out there is going to want to see some kind of product and the, the main media today is naturally the digital video and that's how I get all of my auditions actually sent to me for a lot of um, young conductors they put their excerpts in a certain order always lead off with your best excerpt because you don't know whether the person that's watching is going to watch it to the end when you are watching an audition tape what kind of repertoire do you want to see that makes them the most well-rounded well naturally we have so many different styles in music uh, I, I like to see a, a little bit of the palette of, of colors uh, that the conductor can offer. Uh, I like to see them function like in a technically difficult piece like L'Après-Midi yeah. uh, of Debussy. Something like that juxtaposed to a, a classical symphony of Mozart or Beethoven. Maybe something romantic actually, you know, a Brahms symphony, Dvorak symphony. I like to see whether they understand the difference between a Czech sound and a German sound. I mean, Dvorak and Brahms can be so similar and yet they're so different, especially the way the Germans play Brahms and the way the Czechs play Dvorak. Sometimes it really is eye-opening for any young person to go to Europe and listen to these orchestras play their own material. And it's, it's really amazing how the orchestras differ. Used to be even more. I remember doing a guest appearance in Monte Carlo with the Philharmonique du Monte Carlo. I was doing a ballet program with the Dusseldorfer Ballet, and we were doing um, a program of Apollon Boussaget, uh, of Stravinsky, a Haydn symphony, which was cut between two different symphonies. The last movement belonged to a different symphony. <laughs> I think the choreographer was Yuji Kilian. And anyway, it was, it, was, it was a kind of a pastiche of a Haydn symphony, let's put it that way. Hmm. And just to listen to the different instruments, to listen to the bassoons, and the color, the old French bassoon sound, which almost doesn't even exist, the oboe sound, that, which doesn't exist. Everything's become so internationally based because all the orchestras here, every other orchestra of every other different country, and it's becoming slowly one sound that the entire world has. But that's not what these composers actually composed for. A French composer is actually going to expect a French bassoon sound. And a Russian composer is going to expect a Russian horn sound. That's always very, very interesting to see what nationalistic characteristics the orchestras have. I had the pleasure of teaching in the Czech Republic the last couple of years, and we were doing Dvořák 7. And in the score, there are, there are many, many places where the doubling in the brass is actually apparent. Sometimes actually there isn't some doubling and you actually miss it because the woodwind colors don't come through. And it was interesting to see how the Czechs actually manage that. And what I was told by the chief conductors is that the bores of the actual trombones are a lot smaller in the Czech instruments than they are in the German. And so therefore, the sound that they produce is not quite as crass and uh, actually balances with the woodwind group a lot easier than if you take the Berlin Philharmonic and actually play those parts on German instruments. It's really interesting. If you get around, you can actually experience that. I have never thought about culture as being such a big part of your audition because you have a three-minute tape 
and you have to show all of this and you're so worried about getting this pattern right or this pattern right and bringing this out. It is so important. Real true art only can take place in a place where it actually is nurtured and it almost springs out of the earth where it's supposed to spring. And it wouldn't exist had it not been in the, in the culture. Especially with certain composers that are, are dealing with more folksy kind of writing, like, like the Dvorak, like the Hungarian Brahms, Hungarian dances and so. It's um, really very embedded in the culture, the kinds of sound. Mahler couldn't be Mahler if you didn't hear street musicians playing klezmer clarinet. You can't separate the place and the culture from the music because it all is so tied up together. So yeah, within that small time frame, <laughs> you have to show multitudes. And actually, I don't want somebody to look like he's thinking, well, oh my God, two goes to the left in a four pattern. I don't <laughs> care. And you know, sometimes I don't put it to the left because I use a different pattern for certain things. You have to know exactly what yields what in conducting. How a group actually moves with you and how you get a group to breathe together and with you. And it doesn't have anything to do with conducting one-on-one. The people that I take in my class, a very, very limited class because there are so few acceptances that I can take and give the students the education that I want to give them and the experience that, that I want to give them. Uh, and to say, maybe in the first lesson, I know you think you know how to conduct and you were chosen because you are good. Now I want you to forget everything and let's start all over from the beginning. The conductor gestures should appeal to the subliminal nature of the human brain and make people do certain things that they normally maybe wouldn't do but do them without thinking about them. The last thing I want the orchestra to do is think. I want them to react. And that's a different thing because everybody's been trained to do, oh yes, and I have to do it this way. You don't have to do anything anyway, but what you have to do is you have to present it in a way that people automatically see the light and go. And that's not easy to find, that light switch. And uh, that's, that's the main thing. So sometimes you can almost get too academic in it. Here the conversation turned to Mr. Verone's work with the Cole Orchestra. I had my first rehearsal with the orchestra on Wednesday, so two days ago, and I found them very, very responsive and to me personally and also to what I was saying, uh, which was a great joy. They were well trained. Uh, one of my best DMA students that I've ever had at Eastman is actually the chair of the department. And he's trained them very, very, very well. There's a lot of discipline in the orchestra. I can already see that. But I want to take them actually further on the journey into the sound that I have in my head, which is a very, very German sound. It's constantly making things longer, breaking down that direct bite of sound that is, especially here on the West Coast, because that's what you have in the film business as well. Mm -hmm. In the Berlin Phil and in Germany, where I actually had most of the first 30 years of my professional life, one does play a lot rounder. There is a musical concentration on sound in general of being a lush, warmer sound. So this is what I'm used to, and this is how I'm used to actually Brahms being played. The piece that I'm doing is Brahms' Fourth Symphony. It's 
almost a very autumnal kind of dark colored piece. And what I had actually said to the orchestra the other day was when Brahms referred to his fourth symphony, he said, this is the waltz and polka symphony. I said to myself, Waltz and Polka Symphony? It was explained, actually, in what I was reading, that he referred to the last movement as Waltz, which actually is a little bit strange because we would almost associate the 3-4 in the last movement as being actually too slow for Waltz, but he actually accepted it as a flow. And the polka, naturally, is, I don't usually, it's a it's an allegro giocoso. I always saw maybe a fat person doing a polka, maybe. But maybe he considered it a little bit faster. So it was just interesting to hear his own description in comedy form. It's been really quite wonderful in getting these different sounds that the orchestra, I think, didn't even know that they could make. A conductor always notices on the podium when the orchestra is listening. And what I was trained to do by the orchestras that I conducted like in my 20s in Germany because I almost felt that I was really trained in, in conducting by the professional orchestras that I, that I trained. They knew that I had talent, but they wanted to make sure that I actually approached the animal from the proper side and rehearse the right things in the right places and put the right weight of sound you know, in the right places. And uh, it's really amazing to see in the orchestra, when we change sound, when I alter a, a either a string bowing or a, a particular kind of stroke in the string instruments, that when everybody does that change, that the change in the orchestra sound is immediate. And then everybody goes like, hey, wow. Nobody says it, but you feel it. Or when you know we rehearse the last moment, you get this big, round, beautiful organ-type sound because there aren't any holes in it. When you balance brass with winds and can actually hear the woodwind instruments as well as brass, then it gives a completely different color. And, you know, you play with lengths, you play with articulations. I think for the young conductor, it's really great. One should go through, like, what can you do? What can you play with? What can you change easily? Lengths, dynamics, articulations. And you'd be amazed at the sound differences that you can accomplish. If you know what buttons to push at the right time, you can really make wonders happen. And it's not even that hard. And, and the main thing is that everybody has to listen to each other. A real ensemble does not stem from the beat. That is a fallacy. And no great orchestra ever plays that way. I mean, I, I've seen moments where Sir Simon is actually sitting in the 15th row and will let the orchestra play by itself. <laughs> Yeah, they could do because they know how and they know exactly who to listen to when. A bottle rehearsed the same way in the term. So this is kind of where I'm at and what I'm striving to do and it's so nice to actually do it in an atmosphere where one feels welcomed and it's really been quite marvelous. This has been Notes from the Conservatory from the Bob Cole Conservatory of Music at California State University, Long Beach. Thanks for listening.